Blog Talk Radio. Morning, and thank you for joining us on Three Women Three Ways. I'm Heather Stark, your host, and we are talking about uh, different issues that affect people in our technological age. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the link between technology and increased stalking and domestic violence issues. And we have as our guest uh, Melissa. Are you there, Michelle? Yes, or Michelle. Michelle. Yeah, I, I was t- off air. I was telling Michelle how I'm all discombobulated today because I'm leaving for a, a, a trip tomorrow. So I've been for the last two days like knocking myself out trying to get everything finished and, and ahead of time. And so I apologize to Michelle. The notice that I sent out also had misspellings in it. I'm just a mess today. So I hope all of our listeners as well as Michelle will will forgive me for that. Michelle, tell us about your uh, current position and how you became interested in technology. Sure. I serve as the director of the Stalking Resource Center, which is a national program that is part of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We're a nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C. And we're actually funded by the U.S. Department of Justice to work with professionals, organizations, communities to enhance their ability to recognize and effectively respond to stalking. And so when we look at stalking these days, there's no way we can effectively address it without looking at technology and the many different ways in which Stalkers and abusers and batters are using technology to further their crimes. Yeah. And by further their crime, I'm assuming you mean more control um, as well as actual assaults? Well, so when we look at stalking, what we know is it is a pattern of behavior. So it's a course of conduct that is directed at a specific person and that it causes someone or a reasonable person to feel fear or distress. And so we can see stalking happening in the context of, say, domestic violence where the abuser batterer is using that stalking behavior as a way to try and either maintain power and control over that victim or regain it if the victim leaves the relationship. But we also see stalking happening outside of the context of intimate partner relationships. So it may be occurring between friends, between neighbors, acquaintances, classmates, coworkers. So we actually see it play out in a lot of different types of scenarios. Okay. And on the surface, it sounds to me like, okay, well, I mean, how bad can it be? I mean, somebody gets a spy cam, the NSA is doing that. Um, So how difficult can can technology make a situation and make a woman afraid? How how difficult um, is that? How, How does that go about? Well, Accessing the technology and using the technology by offenders is actually incredibly easy. If you just go online and you do searches for terms like track spouse or track girlfriend, you'll find millions of sites that actually not only show you how to use these technologies, but also are places that sell technologies for individuals to use. So whether it's things like spy cameras or spyware for the phone or the computer or its GPS devices or listening devices um, or cameras. I mean, really, these days we're looking at technology because it is so commonplace that I think we're really at a place where if there's a form of technology out there, some offender somewhere has figured out how to misuse it. 
Okay. And give us examples of how technology can be used. You know what? I need to give out our phone number first if you're out there listening and have had a situation where you've perhaps been cyber-stalked or um, have had uh, problems with technology and abusers. Our phone number for calling in is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. And Michelle and I would love to have you join our conversation. Go ahead, Michelle. Um. I'm sorry, what was the question again? Okay, I'm sorry, I interrupted us. Give us some examples of how this technology can be used. I mean, how, sure. you, you tell me technology and I picture one entity, but at, right. in fact there are hundreds of, of uh, um, ways that somebody can be stalked or, or intimidated by uh, technology. Yes. What are some of the technologies that are used and how are they used to instill that kind I- of um, fear? Yeah, absolutely. And and we're really talking about any form of technology. Probably the most common form of technology we see in stalking cases is the cell phone. And so the way we see offenders using cell phones is most commonly to just communicate or try and communicate with the victim. So they will call repeatedly. They will leave voicemails. They will send text messages. They will send photos. They'll send videos. Uh, they may exploit the features of a cell phone. They If they have access to that victim's cell phone, so if it is someone who's in a relationship, that they may download applications onto that victim's phone that allow them to track that person wherever they are or to monitor their phone use. They can put spyware on a victim's phone, which now gives them the ability to see all of the text messages, to see the call histories, to track that person via the GPS, to activate the camera on that phone, and to actually listen in to all conversations that are happening on the phone. So cell so phones is technology if, that most it, people have. Anyone, can, an offender easily can use that technology. So just now, sitting here right now, somebody, should they want to, um, could access my tel- telephone that's sitting next to me on, on my desk and see what I'm doing and who Not I'm calling? Not unless they've actually loaded spyware onto your phone. And so okay, the offender has access to your phone. They're, you're, they're someone you're in a relationship with or they're a coworker or a classmate or a neighbor and you leave your phone sitting while you go to get a cup of coffee or go and use the restroom. It only takes a few minutes for someone to be able to download software onto your phone that would then give them that absolute access. Wow. And we wouldn't even know it had happened. Nothing changes with the telephone. No. Nope. No, there's no way to detect it by looking at it. It runs in a stealth mode, so you wouldn't see an application. I mean, there's some things that you might experience that could be indicators. So some of the things you might see are the battery is draining more quickly than it historically has, or suddenly there's spikes in data usage of your phone. So if you get your next cell phone bill and, you know, you that you, you're being charged for either more data usage or you see a lot higher data usage and transfer, that could be an indicator. Uh, so some things sometimes might be ways in which you can detect or, or know there's a possibility that something has been loaded onto your phone. If I suspect something has been, how do I find out for sure and how do I fix it? Well, really the only way to positively and with any certainty determine that is through a forensic analysis. And so at that point, you'd have to have 
most likely law enforcement involved. You can take it down to your local cell phone carrier. There's not not a guarantee that they would even be able to detect that there's anything on that phone. One thing you can do is you can take that phone and completely wipe it and restore it back to factory settings, which eliminates everything that's on the phone. But then what you have to do is you have to manually reinstall everything. So most of us who have cell phones, we tend to back up our phones to our computer or to the cloud. And so if something happens to our phone, we can just restore everything from that backup. But if you did that with a phone that had spyware on it, there is a risk that you could actually just be reinstalling that spyware. And so you would have to completely wipe your phone and then restore everything manually and individually, not from a backup. Wow. Wow. And there's no way to tell except for some of those subtle little hints you gave us, like the battery life and... Right. Those are some ways that we have heard from victims that they have experienced those type of things which led them to suspect that something had been put on their phone and then they report to law enforcement and if law enforcement is able to do that forensic analysis of the phone, they can find the spyware on the phone. Wow. Wow. Okay, so we've got the phone. Okay, we know... um, we know now from from what you said that that can be used against us, um, even without our knowing. And what other implements can be used? I mean, okay, we've we've heard about GPS tracking devices. Is that something that's used? Sure, absolutely. And when we talk about GPS these days, GPS is in a lot of different types of devices. So we have GPS in our cell phones. There's standalone independent GPS trackers that, you know, lots of folks use to track themselves if they're going on a road trip. That's where they have a record of every place they've been. Uh, They're often marketed to parents if you have a teenage driver. This way you can monitor how that person is using the car or businesses. Lots of companies that have trucks or deliveries happening, this is a way they can keep an eye on what is happening with their business. So there's a lot of ways we use GPS. But the way we see offenders using it is to track a victim without their knowledge. So they might put a GPS tracker on a victim's car so they can, you know, hide it in the bumper or hide it in a door panel. And they can now, in real time, if it's active GPS, they can actually see that person as they move with about a one to five second delay through an online site or through an application. And so they can just conveniently from their phone or their tablet or their computer see where this person is at any given point in time. Now, there's two types of GPS. I mentioned active GPS, which allows you to track someone in real time. Passive GPS would be that offender puts the tracker on that victim's car, the victim drives around. The offender then has to retrieve that tracker and connect it to their computer and download the information, and now they can see everywhere the person has been. But that can also be useful because they can see, are there patterns, are there routines, is there a place that the victim goes uh, regularly? So, yes, they can see from the driving history that uh, every day at 6.30 they go to the gym. And so now they know this is where this person is going to be 6.30 every day. Or Saturday mornings they typically go to the grocery store. So now they know where they can go to find that victim or to intercept that victim. So. GPS we see offenders using very commonly because the technology is so readily available and it's not very expensive. And again, is there any way to tell if somebody has put a GPS tracker, let's say, on your car? 
the way to tell would be to actually locating the tracker, which given the size of some of these trackers can be challenging. Uh, they're not very big. They're not much bigger than some keys or maybe a garage door opener. And so if you think about all the places you could hide something like that in a car, whether it's in a panel or under a seat or under the hood or in an air vent or under a bumper, there's so many places it could be hidden. So it would really require someone locating the tracker on or in their car and then from a law enforcement perspective, then law enforcement needs to connect that tracker back to the suspect or back to the offender. But one of the things we often hear victims saying that might be an indicator that there is some sort of tracking device being used is, you know, the offender knows every place I am. They show up places I'm at, and they're suddenly there, and I know they weren't following me. They ask me or tell me, oh, I know you were here on such and such a day, and then you were here. And so clearly there's some way that this person has this information that they shouldn't have. And that's clearly threatening when somebody keeps, you know, when that happens to uh, a person that, I mean, the anxiety that that alone could create must be very, very significant for people. Um, oh, to say absolutely. nothing of, yeah, to say nothing of the fact that you know, if this person can find you, they can kill you. Um, the reason that I make that statement is because of um, an article uh, that I read where mobile stealth, mobile stealth, it was a product that uh, got some really good reviews online, and a convicted murderer. Simon Gitani uh, read his girlfriend Lisa Harnum's text messages, or read those text messages, uh, and in those text messages she said to her friend that she was planning on leaving. And so when he figured that out and was able to spy on her, um, he basically threw her off the, the balcony of her 15th floor apartment. Um, so, uh, you know, this is not some annoying thing. This thing, you know, this cyber spying stuff can be fatal. Um, no, we know not- that when we look at, when we, you're absolutely right, when we look at stalking cases, we know that the behaviors often and frequently escalate into other types of violence, so whether it's physical assault or sexual violence. And there is a very real risk, risk of lethality in these cases. In fact, some research that's been done that has looked at cases where women were murdered by current or former intimate partners, what they found was that three out of the four women who were murdered had been stalked in the year prior to their murder. So we know in the majority of these cases where women are killed by a current or former intimate partner, that stalking behavior is occurring prior to that homicide. Wow. Um, The... um technology that we're referring to we call it all when it's put into use we call it all cyber stalking or is that a specific kind of use of the technology is it all called cyber we actually tend to avoid the term cyber stalking only because it often makes people think very narrowly about computers and this notion of cyberspace but when we talk about the use of technology to stalk As I mentioned earlier, I really think any form of technology can be misused or abused. And so, you know, we've talked about cell phones, we've talked about GPS, but it is also computers. It can be things like fax machines, social networking sites, email, assistive devices, uh, applications, really any form of technology. And, And as I travel around the country, I hear stories from 
law enforcement and victims and victim service providers about all sorts of things, all different types of technology being used. I was doing some work in a community, and there was a law enforcement officer there who was telling me about a case that he had worked where the offender had used deer cameras to monitor the victim, so had hidden deer cameras in all of the air vents in the home so that they could track this person. There was another person in a rural area I was working who was telling me that they had a case where they had an offender who used a uh, hunting dog collar that had a GPS tracker and hid that in the victim's car in order to be able to track them. So really when we talk about technology, we're talking about any form of technology, which is why we tend not to use that term cyber stalking because it does sometimes make people think about a specific type of technology. Yeah. And who doesn't have technology? I mean, we've got cell phones, we've got computers, we've got iPads and iPods. Um, you know, there there is really no way you can just say, well, I'm going to get rid of my technology and then it's not a problem. I, we can't do that in this world today. So virtually anyone would be at risk for this kind of um, invasive behavior, right? No, and, and you are right. We do live in a society these days where it, it, it is unrealistic to think about just stopping to use these technologies. We use them personally. We use them professionally. And it's actually one of the things that we spend a lot of time talking about when we work with folks who are responding to these cases and working with victims is that there does seem to be a, an instinctual response of, well, okay, if the offender is, you know, calling you repeatedly or, you know, sending you text messages, well, then you just have to get rid of your cell phone. Or if they're monitoring your computer, you have to stop using your computer. Or if they're tracking you through your social networking site, well, you have to stop using social networking. And those are unrealistic because it's just not feasible for most people not to be able to use technology these days. And also we have to think about two additional aspects that for so many of us, technology is how we stay connected to our friends, our family, our support networks. And so if we're telling the victim you have to just stop using the technology, we're actually disconnecting them from those networks. We're further isolating them, and that isolation only benefits the offender. The second thing we also need to keep in mind is that if we're telling someone to stop using the technology and this is how the offender may have been communicating or trying to stay connected with the victim, and suddenly that avenue gets cut off, it could potentially escalate that offender's behavior. And so what we really talk about is how, how can we, how can victims, but really all of us, how can we all engage with technology more safely? Okay. Um, okay, so we mentioned cell phones, we've mentioned home computers or uh, any kind of computer. Is there any kind of obscure technology that we haven't that, that's used that we haven't heard of at this point? I mean, the cameras, clearly. Sure. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know that it's really about obscure technologies. It, it, it's common. Mostly what we see are the common technologies. So cell phones, like we talked about, GPS with computers. Computers are a treasure trove of information, right, because we do so much on our computers that, you know, we talked about spyware for cell phones, but similar software for computers that an offender could actually put spyware on a victim's computer, either if they have physical access to that computer or they can actually deliver that remotely. So they may send an email to the victim and there's an attachment and as the victim opens the attachment, 
it installs spyware on the computer, or it could be actually embedded into an e-greeting. So lots of us get or send e-greetings, and you may have an offender who sends the victim an e-greeting, and they open it up, and while they're viewing the greeting, it actually downloads the spyware onto their computer. So someone wouldn't need physical access to actually get this onto someone's computer, but once it's on there, it allows the offender to see every email, see all social networking sites visited, chats, instant messages, to see screenshots. So anything that the victim is physically looking at on their computer, the offender can see it. Uh, see search histories, uh, websites visited, really everything that someone does on their computer. And some banking. of these programs... Yeah, yeah Banking. I mean, how many of us do our, our bill paying, et cetera, et cetera, online? And, you know, right. giving someone also, your financial information is scary, too. You sure. Know? Yeah, no, and it also, it, it will also capture all your keystrokes. So anytime you go to a site, like a banking site or your email or any site where you have to enter in a login and a password, well, now the offender has that information. And you mentioned banking. One of the things that we're seeing increasingly in stalking cases are elements of identity theft. So the stalker actually will take funds from a victim's account or get information from technology where they'll set up fake accounts in that victim's name. So we're seeing identity theft also being part of this. And some of those spywares not only will collect all of that data from a computer, but it will also allow the offender to control some of the physical functioning of that computer. So it can turn it on and turn it off. It can activate the camera. So most laptops these days have those built-in cameras. And so it would allow the offender to actually watch the victim. And we've seen cases, and this has been coming up more and more frequently, where surreptitiously we have the offenders who are taking photos, recording video, you know, if a victim has their laptop in their bedroom, so perhaps when they're getting dressed in the morning or getting ready for bed at night, you have people who are using those photos and videos and then using them to try and actually blackmail those victims. So we see spyware on computers. And in talking about the cameras, it's, you know, not just the cameras that we know about, like the ones that are in our computers, but it's also so easy to hide a camera. So Anyone who watched, you know, a show like Dateline or 20, 20 or 48 hours in the, back in the 90s and early 2000s, you would have seen an episode on nanny cams. There was lots of news stories about put a hidden camera in your home, make sure your child care provider is not harming your kids. Well, that concept of hidden cameras has only evolved in that the cameras have gotten smaller and they've gotten cheaper. And you can really hide a camera in anything these days. And so we'll see offenders who will put cameras in a victim's home or in a victim's workspace so that they can monitor them. They can see them all the time. They can use an online service or connect it to Wi-Fi so that they can monitor it 24-7. So we see there cameras so being used in a lot of different ways. Yeah. There are so many... Um uh, situations where, you know, if a domestic violence situation ends up in court, divorce court, um, these guys will use anything they can get their hands on, you know, to try and, and win because that's what they do. And um, is there any way that uh, this stuff is being used in a court? Uh, is it worse if they have children where they're required to visit the father? Is, uh, is that give another avenue of, of uh, attack, if you will, for uh, potential spying? 
Well, when we do see cases where there are children involved, there are some additional concerns and risks. And one of those is that the children can be used by the offending parent to try and deliver some of these technologies. So, you know, perhaps they will give the child a computer game that they encourage them to go and install on their home computer so they can play it when they're with the the non-offending parent, but it's also going to load spyware onto that computer, and now the offending parent has access to that. Uh, We talked about GPS. There's actually GPS watches that have, you know, cartoon characters and uh, superheroes that are, are geared towards children. And so you might have an offender who gives the child one of these watches, and now when the child, again, is with a non-offending parent, that offender can see everywhere that they are. You might yeah. have uh, uh, offending parents who are, you know, using, who, who are using cell phones. So, you know, we see this in a lot of uh, custody cases where the offending parent will ask a family court judge to require that the, you know, child calls them every night at 7 p.m. so they can stay connected, but then they will offer, oh, well, let me provide the child with a cell phone so they can do that. Well, perhaps they've installed spyware onto that cell phone, so now, again, when that child is with the non-offending parent, they can see everything. They can track wherever that person is. They can activate the speaker and listen in on conversations. And so there is absolutely an additional concern when there are children involved that, you know, the offending parent might use that child to try and deliver some of the technology or exploit that child with some of these technologies. Wow. And then, as you mentioned, some of the stuff ends up in court as, as some sort of evidence or something, huh? Well, absolutely. You know, one of the things about technology is that while it absolutely poses a challenge in that it it facilitates the stalking behavior, it makes it so much easier to do, it also now creates this digital evidence trail because anytime we're using one of these technologies, there's evidence of that use. And so there's actually this great potential for law enforcement to be able to collect that evidence and use it and build their cases and for prosecutors to be able to use it to try and hold these offenders accountable in criminal court. And so there are some benefits to the technology as well in that it can provide this treasure trove of evidence. And and some of the very same technologies that we actually see stalkers using, we also see victims using to try and enhance their own safety. So one example is we've talked about stalkers who use hidden cameras, well, we see victims who will put hidden cameras, hide cameras around their own property or inside their own home so they can actually see, oh, has the offender been here? Uh, it, it may actually collect the evidence of if the offender is committing some sort of property damage. Well, now they've got the video of it, so it's actually great evidence. So we see the technologies, obviously, we're, we're focusing on how they can be misused, but there's really some benefits to them as well both for victims and for law enforcement. So how prevalent is all of this? Um, I read one statistic. It it was actually from Australia, but it said that in one study they found that two-thirds of domestic violence victims um, said they were made to feel like they were being watched or tracked, but only half of them told somebody about it. Yeah, and there's actually a lot lot of interesting nuances in in that, that piece of data you just cited. So first, when we look at 
technology and how commonly it's used in cases where stalking is occurring. You know, for example, in over three-quarters of cases, we see phone usage, so calls, messages, texts, things like that. Uh, in over a third of cases, victims are reporting that the offender was using some sort of device to either watch them, listen in on conversations, or track them. But that number, I think, is going to be an underestimate because so many of these technologies can be used against the victim without their knowledge. And so we have some data that we can point to, but in so many cases, it's based on asking the victim, and an offender could use some of these technologies on a victim or against a victim without them even knowing. So we do see the technology frequently in cases. When we look at this intersection between domestic violence and stalking, the research bears out that there is absolutely this connection here. Over 80% of victims who were stalked by a current or former intimate partner report also being physically abused or assaulted by that partner. So we do see these issues often intersecting. And when we think about the technology aspects and we look at it within that context of domestic violence, you know, we're talking about situations where the offender probably has had access to that victim's technology, so to their phone, to their computer. They have had or do have access to that victim's car, to that victim's house. And so they could very easily put some of these technologies, put a tracker on a victim's car, hide cameras in that victim's home. And so we really do need to be mindful of the technology aspects when we're talking about domestic violence. So now this may be a far-fetched question, but on the TV shows, they always show this little guy coming in with a machine that will detect any cameras or listening devices in your home. Um, does that actually work, and would that be a resource that um, some domestic violence survivors might be able to use? Um, there are versions of detectors, so it may be a camera detector, it might be a signal detector. The piece that to remember is that you know, to some degree you get what you pay for. And if you go online and you look at the places that sell these types of detectors, you're going to see them ranging in price for anywhere from under $100 to over $5,000. And the more expensive ones tend to be more reliable. They also tend to be able to be more precise in their detection without going into a lot of technical jargon. So most victims are not necessarily going to be able to afford those devices on their own. But even even if someone were calling, you know, the top-of-the-line device, we have to remember that offenders can be very creative and can be very smart in what they're doing. And so let's say you have a victim who suspects that the offenders put cameras in their home, they purchased one of these camera detectors, and they go home and they use it to try and detect the cameras. Well, one, the offender may actually see them walk in with a camera detector and then shut off the camera. Or often when offenders learn victims' routines, they can put cameras on timers. So they know the victim leaves every day for work at 8 in the morning and comes home at 6 o'clock at night, and they set up the cameras so that they turn on you know, at 6 p.m., and then they turn off at 8 a.m. Well, if the victim goes out and buys a camera detector and comes back at 2 in the afternoon and searches for that camera, 
it may not necessarily detect it because the camera isn't on and isn't transmitting. And so the victim thinks, well, okay, there aren't any cameras here when in fact there are. So they are something that victims can use and that law enforcement does use, but they're, they're not going to be a guarantee. So it, it can be useful tools, but always to remember that they're not infallible. Yeah. Well, and another thing is the accessibility. I mean, does law enforcement automatically come out and check for these things if you tell them to? Um, do shelters have grants to go buy these things so they can loan them out to victims? I mean, accessibility must be a huge issue about those things as well as reliability. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I don't think that there are many domestic violence programs who, who have the funds or would be using their resources in that specific way. Um, and also with law enforcement, it's going to vary across the country. You know, we, you may be talking about a large police department in an urban area that has their own high-tech or computer crimes unit that may have this capacity, but we're also talking about small-town rural law enforcement agencies that have only a handful of officers and don't have the budget to purchase this type of equipment. So it's, it's absolutely going to vary depending where you're at. Let me throw out our number again, Michelle, um, 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. Give us a call if you've had any experience with this kind of an issue or if you have some comments to share with us. Uh, we would love to hear them. So it sounds like, first of all, this kind of uh, technology is readily accessible to anybody who cares to have it. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it's also uh, pretty cheap to get for anybody who wants to have it. And it also sounds like it's uh, reasonably easy to install. What can you do to protect yourself? I mean, we've just talked about these, these sweepers for cameras and stuff, and that's not a practical alternative. So if you suspect that you're being cyber, well, you don't want to use the term cyber stock. If you, if you believe technology is being used uh, to spy on you, what what alternatives do you have? What can you do to try and protect yourself? Right. No, it's a great question. And, and in thinking about protecting ourselves, whether we're victims or for any of us, I mean, there's a few precautions we can take. So you know, simple things like put a password on your cell phone so that even if someone gets your phone, they can't readily access it. Same with your computer. Uh, don't open emails from unknown folks, or if it is someone where the victim knows who the offender is, don't open those emails, don't open attachments, don't open anything from them. So to some degree, it's, it's the kind of practical technology interaction advice that all of us should be adhering to these days as it is. If it's a case where the victim already believes that somehow their technology has been compromised um, or that you know, there, there is some sort of device being used against them, they, they, there is that option of reporting to law enforcement. And so having law enforcement become involved and investigating this. But one piece of advice that I would give to, to any victim is to connect with a local service provider. So whether that's at a local domestic violence program or a victim services agency of some sort, to connect with someone who can provide some additional information and guidance and to work around safety planning. So 
we can talk about general practices and things that all of us should be thinking of and some general safety guidelines. But really when we're talking about safety planning around technology, that's got to be individualized to that victim, to that victim's experience, to that victim's circumstances, to that victim's use of technology. And so working with an advocate at a local victim services agency, someone who can sit down and look through the risks and the possible technologies that might be being deployed and how they can create an individualized safety plan for that victim is really one of the best things that we can offer. And most communities have some version of a domestic violence program or a victim services agency so they can get that information. For those that may not have those resources in their own community, we have a lot of information on our website for victims, including information of technology. Another really great resource, the National Network to End Domestic Violence has lots of great information around technology safety for victims of domestic violence on their website. Uh, their website is nnedv.org, National Network to End Domestic Violence. And then our website, the easiest thing is actually just to do an online search for the Stalking Resource Center. But our URL is www.victimsofcrime.org slash SRC, Stalking Resource Center. And that's a .org? Yes. Okay, slash resource center. Okay, I will... SRC, Stocking Resource Center. Yep. Like I said, if you just do an online search for us for Stocking Resource Center, you should find us pretty easily. Okay. Okay, so that's two resources that somebody could go to. Is it a, a good idea to go to the police? Sometimes, you know, police don't like... they. I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Uh, sometimes police um, will disregard and uh, kind of tack it against you if you go and say, I think I'm being stalked here um, with technology and I can't prove it. Yeah, stalking, stalking is a really challenging crime for law enforcement for a number of reasons. First of all, we're talking about behavior that, while probably the behavior is as old as time itself, has only really been criminalized within the past few decades. So the first stalking law was passed in 1990 in California, and then within about eight years, every state had a stalking statute. But in many ways, our laws are constantly playing catch-up, particularly around the technology. So one, ensuring that using these technologies is actually a crime. And and I can say that everywhere in the U.S. it it is a crime based on the laws. But what goes hand in hand with that is also training folks around how to recognize when stalking is occurring, when these technologies are being used, and also not minimizing behavior just because there's technology involved. Because I think it can be a really common response, and not just amongst law enforcement, but amongst any of us, it's like, oh, you're getting some text messages. Well, just delete it, then it's gone, right? But that yep. that doesn't mean it stops, and it doesn't mean that the threat goes away just because you can't see it anymore. And we often do hear from victims that they feel like they actually have to compile all of this documentation and evidence before they report so that they'll actually be believed. And one of the additional challenges is the technology sometimes creates 
scenarios where victims are going to be talking about behavior that's going to sound odd or improbable or even impossible, that technology really makes some of the impossible possible. So, you know, if someone came to you and said, last night my computer turned itself on and it threatened to kill me, well, that either sounds like something out of science fiction or that this person might have some mental health issues. And if you don't know that there's a form of technology out there that makes that possible, it might be very easy to dismiss this person. So there are some challenges, and we hear this from victims all the time about feeling like they have to be able to actually document and, and prove this when they go and report, but then also knowing that for law enforcement, it, it's a training issue. It's ensuring that they are kept abreast of the emerging technologies, how offenders are being, how offenders are using them, and also recognizing the risks associated with these cases. That's a big chunk for a victim to do, especially, you know, during the circumstances that she's, I'm assuming she's Mm -hmm. probably in the process of separating from um, the abuser or divorcing from, and she's going through all sorts of things. She's going through fear. She's going through financial challenges. She's going through work challenges. She's going through, you know, trying to um, possibly find a new home, new schools for the kids, trying to take care of the kids. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff going on with these women even if there's no technological challenges. And then you throw these technological challenges at them that they also have to watch out for that. I I can't imagine how how people are dealing with that. Yeah, you know, stalking is probably the only crime that I can think of where victims are doing so much of that work, where they are the ones who are saving those emails and saving those text messages and maintaining a log or a calendar with all of the incidents that are occurring. And and we do encourage victims to do that so that if they do choose to report to law enforcement, law enforcement has all of that evidence and can use it to build a case. But really there's no other crime that I can think of where we do that. You know, if your home is burgled, you're not going to be dusting for fingerprints yourself before you call the police. Or, you know, if your car is stolen, you're not going to be trying to get the videotape from the parking garage. Really, stalking is the only crime where really victims are doing so much of that legwork themselves long before they ever report. And I think part of it is because they because so many of these these behaviors individually are not going to be criminal behavior, so in most cases it's not illegal to send someone a text message or to call someone or to show up in a public place, so feeling like they've got to pull all this together in order to make it really clear that this course of conduct is occurring and that now we have this crime of stalking. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the challenge of, you know, having the court believe you. I mean, I'm making gross generalizations here, but a lot of courts just kind of have an unconscious assumption that the the victim is lying. Um, and so if she goes in with all – I've heard a lot of stories where a woman goes in with her documentation and with her, you know, support for what she's alleging, and the judges just kind of like – or the guardians ad litem just kind of go, uh-huh, she's being a little crazy here. 
Yeah, and, you know, again, it goes back to keeping abreast of the technologies and how quickly they evolve and what they're capable of. I had gotten a call a couple years ago from a victim service provider who was working with a woman who was trying to obtain a protection order, and in her petition, one of the things she included was that she, her ex-partner had put spyware on her computer and was tracking her every move, and the judge who was hearing the petition said, that doesn't exist. You made that up and denied the order. Well, computer spyware is not that new of a technology. It's been around for decades, and yet you have folks who sometimes aren't aware of the technologies that are out there or aren't certain how to verify or authenticate evidence. You know, one of the things that back in the early days of DNA even, you know, there were all these questions about how reliable was it? Well, how do we know that this is authentic? How do we know it hasn't been tampered with? Same things we're hearing around all of these technologies. You might have someone who comes in with a printout of an email and it is a legitimate question for a judge to ask, well, how do we know that that hasn't been altered? You know, because we'll see defendants do this all the time. We'll see offenders and abusers do this. They they will come in and they'll have created evidence to try and support their cases. And so those questions to some degree do have to be asked about how do we know this is real? How do we know this is authentic? And, you know, for for victims that absolutely becomes frustrating and, and a challenge, and at least in criminal cases, it's part of what the role of law enforcement and that prosecutor in order to be able to pull that evidence together and demonstrate that it is good authentic evidence. Okay, so that brings us to the question of prosecuting. Can a woman who's going, and again, we're surrounding it with this DV scenario. I mean, she's she's trying to uh, deal with that whole DV stuff and the after effects and the economic effects and, uh, you know, all of that stuff. Can she prosecute the cyber, the, the technology invasions? I mean, can she do that? Well, she can report a crime. So, you know, okay. the, way our criminal, the way our criminal justice system works is, you know, if, if you're being stopped, you can report that to law enforcement. That is a crime. It is a violation of the law. And so then the way the process works is law enforcement would, you know, write up that report, do an investigation, and then depending on your jurisdiction, either charge it or forward it to the prosecutor for the prosecutor to charge it and then move forward from there. So the first step is always, you know, if someone is interested in having a case brought forward and having that offender held accountable in criminal court is reporting it to law enforcement. What I have uh, determined after about 20 years of working in, uh, with domestic violence situations is that it is crucial that you have that paper trail. Um, a lot of people poo-poo protection orders saying, well, they can't really protect you. No, they can't, but it's the start of a paper trail that will help support your position. It sounds like reporting this uh, technological invasion uh, is also part of the paper trail, and when the paper trail gets, gets long enough, then people tend to start looking at it and listening to it and believing it. That's my Yeah, opinion. absolutely. No, I, I think reporting, absolutely, it's always an option for victims. You know, we, our position is we, we don't tell a victim what to do. We'll talk to them about their options so that they can make informed decisions, and reporting to law enforcement is always an option. Uh, 
one thing we always want folks to keep in mind, though, is reporting itself is not going to stop the stalking behavior. There's a really high rate of recidivism amongst offenders. Nearly two-thirds are going to reengage after some sort of legal intervention. So whether it's being reported or being arrested or actually being convicted and put on probation or parole, that most of these offenders are still going to engage in these behaviors. And, and so many of them continue to do it actually from jail or from prison. And so wanting victims to recognize that reporting alone is not going to immediately stop the behavior. And in fact, in many cases, it could actually escalate the offender's behavior because now they're upset. How dare you report me to law enforcement? And so, you know, we just want folks to, to recognize that there are some additional considerations when it comes to reporting because that alone typically will not stop the stalker. Yeah. Now, if you do have a, and again, I'm not a lawyer here, but if you do have a protection order that says no contact, if you have a no contact mm-hmm. order, and mm-hmm. uh, that person sends an email to the victim, that's contact. And the no contact Absolutely. orders will specify what kind of yeah. contact, it, you know, in, in some cases, if there's children, they, they will say no emails are okay. But in some cases, they will say no, no phone calls, no right. letters, no, you know. And, and in that case, if you have your protection order and then you know this has been happening, then yeah. that can be something that can be definitely um, uh, could find some consequences for the stalker. But Absolutely. again, there's, yeah, there are so many components First of all, of how this, this stalking can be done, how technology can be used in nefarious ways, if you will. Um, I have heard a complaint from people that, um, yes, the victim has to do a lot of paperwork. The victim has to compile uh, evidence, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. But I, I understand that it's frustrating, especially since you're going through all this other stuff at the same time. But on the other hand, people who are mugged, you know, they have to go through the paper, you know, all the the work. And, you know, if their wallet is stolen, they have to go through getting another license. They have to go through paying for, you know, new a new license, new credit cards, reporting all of that. You know, so a victim typically has been left with a lot of work to do. Your comments on yeah. that? No, absolutely. And, you know, I... I I talked a little bit about this already, about how stalking is rather unique in that sense and that a victim is doing so much of that work. And we do recommend that victims do document what's happening. So whether it's keeping a journal where they're, you know, cataloging everything that's happening or using a calendar so on any given day that something happens, they're writing it down or using a a stalking incident log like the one that we have on our website, that they do document it and that they do preserve those emails and those text messages and anything else because then if they do choose to report to law enforcement or if they do choose to try and obtain a protection order, all of that is going to be vital. It's going to be something that will only help either build that case or support their petition for a protection order. And so it is it is, it is frustrating that the victims have to do so much of that work. But at the same time, we've also heard from some victims that there, there can be something empowering in that process, that as they're going through and, and they're documenting it and they're collecting all this, they're, they're, they know they're doing it because ultimately this will help hold that offender accountable. And so some victims have actually said that the process of it actually is, a, is an empowering process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can see that, and I think that that uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I know that it's uh, really, really difficult, you know, for a victim to do all of this stuff, but I do think that there might be some benefits to it for the victim herself. Um, the other thing that I see is our shelters and uh, domestic violence support groups, are they all, up, uh, well, are most of them up to speed on how to help a cyber-stalked victim? And I'm sorry to keep using that term. But <laughs> no, no, no. No, I, I I would say it, it's going to vary, absolutely, depending, you know, where you're at. I, I will say that, you know, domestic violence programs, uh, generally when they look at domestic violence, you know, that's what they do. They're they're skilled at handling it. They're skilled at providing information and advocacy and support and legal interventions. And so absolutely they are the resource for victims. In terms of the technology, I think they, like everyone else who might be responding to these types of crimes, are struggling to keep up with it and to know how to best create policies and practices to keep victims safe and also how to best work with victims individually to educate them about how technologies could be being used or misused and then how to safety plan around it. And it's part of what we do. It's part of our role as a program is, again, to go out and provide training and resources and assistance to those very victim service providers so that they have that awareness, so that they're best equipped to respond around the technology um, in order to try and keep those victims that they're working with safe. But it's really, it's, it's going to depend. It's, it's going to depend, you know, where you're at and what that particular agency has done in order to enhance their own capacity. And while it's always a good idea to to seek help from your local agency because they have knowledge and they can help you, mm-hmm. um, but if Absolutely. this is a particular area that they don't have knowledge, you mentioned um, that you you know Google uh, stalk stalking resources center stalking resource center stalking resource center, and that that will get you right to your organization, which sounds like it would have a lot of assistance for a woman. So, again, I'm going to give you uh, a chance to give us those two web pages again, those two websites, the NNEDV and the um, uh, Victims uh, of Crime website. Could you do that? Sure. So the Stalking Resource Center, our website is www.victimsofcrime.org slash SRC, and if victims go to that page or anyone who's working with victims, they can find lots of information and resources on that page. Uh, I do want to just clarify that we are not a direct service provider, so we don't actually work directly with victims. So if victims contact us, what we will try and do is connect them back with a local service provider. But for professionals, for victim service providers, law enforcement prosecutors, anyone who's working on a case involving stalking, if they have questions, if they're seeking information, absolutely they can contact us for those resources. The other organization, the National Network to End Domestic Violence, their website is nnedv.org. And if you want to look specifically for the technology resources, it's through a project of theirs called the Safety Net Project. And so if you're on their website, you can actually find those if you look at the Safety Net Project. Uh, NNEDV, very similar to us, they do not provide direct services to victims. They would refer a domestic violence victim back to a provider in their own community One additional resource, though, for any victim is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. And And I have that right here. (laughs) It's 
It's 1-800-799-7233. 799-7233. And they can refer you to the victim services closest to you. Um, to help with domestic violence. So it sounds like we have three sources that a victim can go to, the hotline and an EDV, your organization, and they can gather some information, and then they can take that information, go to their local um, uh, victim services or domestic violence services provider, and together you can look at those that information that she collected, and if they need more, if they need more, then they can contact an EDV or you. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And just we, we're almost down to the wire here, but um, there are some just basic uh, rules for people to be safe uh, on the Internet. And I think if we could go over those, I know one is to never open an email from somebody you don't know. Right, which in a professional setting becomes a little difficult depending on your job because you may get emails from folks you don't know. Um, but if you're, if you're a victim, so, you know, you are already experiencing violence or stalking, you want to be ex- extra cautious about this. Um, or especially if you know who your offender is, don't open those emails or specifically don't open any attachments to emails because that's where a lot of the threat absolutely lies. But for any of us, just practical tips, you know, you want to be cautious about opening emails from unknown folks. You want to be cautious about particularly attachments. Uh, You really want to ensure that you have some sort of virus detection software on your computer, you know, McAfee, Norton, Symantec, those are some of the big three, and that you're regularly updating your virus definition. That's a really critical piece because for all the producers of the malware and spyware, they're constantly updating their versions. And so for any of us, we have to ensure that we have the most up-to-date virus definitions for our virus software. So that's a really good tip. We all should have that on our computers. Um, that you're what about changing passwords? What about changing passwords? You know, the whole thing that has uh, blown up this week with Heartbleed really demonstrates how important it is that we use secure passwords, that we change our passwords. And the ideal advice is that you have a different password for everything, that you're not using the same password repeatedly in place after place. And that becomes challenging because so many things that we do these days require a password, right? And how are we supposed to keep all of these different passwords that ideally are multi-characters, combinations of letters and numbers and symbols. How do we keep that all in our head? And there's some great applications out there to actually manage your password. So there are tools to try and make that easier, but we should frequently change our passwords as well. And another really simple thing, don't share your passwords with anyone. So don't tell your passwords to your friends or to that person you're in a relationship with. Your password should be kept private. And if you have some challenges remembering your password, you know, don't write it on a post-it note that you stick on the side of your monitor because then anybody can see your password, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, also, please don't use your birthday for your password. Um, that I think I read a story that 1234 and birthdays were the most common passwords used, and those would well, be the first logical place to look, I would think. Yeah, yeah. And again, we're talk- when we're talking about stalking in, in the context of domestic violence or the fact that it most often happens between people who know each other in some capacity, 
if you know someone and you use a password that's either based on, you know, your birthday or your favorite color, people can often figure it out. But also, when you look at most of the security questions on sites, there are things like, what's your mother's maiden name? Where did you go to high school? What town were you born in? Well, someone who knows you knows the answers to those questions. So thinking about Thank you using so the much, more Michelle. difficult ones. It's been, it's been very, very helpful having you on. And I'm going to end the show with a quote. And it's a quote okay. from Michelle Garcia. Technology oh. itself is not the problem. It doesn't cause stalking, but it does facilitate it. Thank you, Michelle Garcia, for being with us. I've learned a lot. Please join us next week. We return three women, three ways. 